On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk. Two days ago, a new plaque was unveiled in Islington, North London, the parliamentary constituency of a certain Jeremy Corbyn. Um, But unusually, the person being commemorated in the plaque isn't a local or wasn't actually a Brit at all. It was an Irish nationalist. Uh, Because for Michael Collins, London was a pretty defining city. And long before he ever went over to negotiate the treaty, it was a city in which he worked, he socialised... And it's a city where he became increasingly active in Irish radical circles. And Donald Fallon is here to tell us all about it. Donald, um, one thing which is always striking about when you go to London is that th- there isn't really one London, I suppose. That there's kind of many Londons and, and then Irish London is probably just one part of it. Yeah, it's not the weird thing about London. It's the, it's the centre of the empire. You know, it's the first city of the empire. And then it's always been a city of migration. So it has this weird thing going on where it had numerous communities within it mm. who had tensions, you know, with the empire. So, for example, Indian separatists. And I think of, you know, Udam Singh, the, the Indian revolutionary who shot dead Michael O'Dwyer. Uh, we talked about him before, the man mm. who carried out the, the or ordered the Amritsar massacre. He shot him in a meeting in, in Caxton Hall in Westminster. So, you know, Indian London exists and has, a, has its own kind of hidden histories. Uh, and yeah, across London, there were many, many communities that were both in the empire and conspiring against it. Yeah. And that included... Uh, the Irish and, and, and the contribution of the Irish in London of course it spans everything imaginable from politics to culture mm. to association football but yeah, going back to the revolution it's significant it's very far reaching and even in, in the words of the national anthem you know Pat Kearney has those great oh, words yeah, yeah. soldiers are we whose lives are pledged to Ireland some have come from a land beyond the wave you know the idea that people would travel back mm. if you will you know from the, from the heart of the empire to fight against it I'm reminded of that Tommy Tiernan line of uh, you know the, the British being so annoyed that they went in contact all these other countries and then those people <laughs> yeah. followed them home like how, how dare they um, wasn't all politics either though when you talk about different factions within London you might think that it's oh it's it's the, the Indian separatists or the Irish nationalists but th- there's more to it than just politics obviously there's, yeah. there's culture and sports the, and more the ranks of the, the GAA the Gaelic Athletic Association and they, they never really in the, the infancy had the infrastructure that they needed in mm. London it was mostly you know fellas in public parks playing Gaelic football and hurling but the GAA was very visible in London from the early days the volunteers the IRB I mean they were all there and they're all this mad mix of second generation Irish, you know, people whose parents had emigrated yeah. and who may have spoken with, with Cockney accents, but who still regarded themselves very much as Irish. And then the first generation, you know, not the first or last people to go to Britain kind of uh, in, in search of work. So what do emigrants do? It's true in every society. It's true of the emigrant communities that live in Ireland today. They mingle amongst each other. You, mm. you had, you know, the Gaelic League, traditional music, dances where people met partners, you know, where they met friends. So it was all going on over there. And, mm. and Sean Noonan, a, a contemporary of, of Michael Collins, he talks about his own experience and he begins a statement. I was born in London in May 1890. My parents are both intensely national, Athenian stock and took an active part in the Irish movements in London. So in that sense, it was in the blood, you know, for, yeah. for a lot of people. And while they may have been born in London, you know, they very much regarded themselves mm. as, as as Irish people. As we were walking into the studio, there was some footage of Mick Lynch being played on Sky News and you sort of thought, well, there's a perfect example of somebody who wasn't born or raised yeah. on this island but still obviously feels his roots to it. You know, um, a good, good little anecdote people might not know is that Mick was behind the goal for the famous Ray Houghton goal against England. Against England? <laughs> against England. <laughs> a member of Such the, is his Irishness. The, the yeah. London Republic of Ireland Supporters Club. So yeah, he kind of embodies the fact that this, this still exists in some ways, yeah. this feeling. Um, for Michael Collins, of course, he's not just Irish, he's from Cork. And that's obviously a very important <laughs> distinction for many Corkonians. Um, he is eternally associated, obviously, with Cork. But the, I suppose, given the times, the fact that he ended up in London really isn't that much of a surprise. Astonishingly, Mick Collins' father was 75 
at the time of his birth. What? Which is just, yeah, which is wild, isn't it? Absolutely wild. And then his mother died in 1907. So for him, I think it was a kind of economic decision. You know, he wasn't really tied down to any family roots. His parents were, were, were dead from mm. a very young age in his life. I think there was a kind of wanderlust that came with that as well. So, I mean, he arrives in London. He works in the West Kensington Post Office Savings Bank. Is that amazing to imagine? I mean, the guy who later heads up the Department of Finance during the revolution, yeah. which he is a very, very important part bank. of the revolution. Yeah. He kind of learns everything he knows about economics there. I mean, he works uh, in a London stockbroker's and he really devotes himself to studying finances uh, when he's when he's in Britain. So arguably, you know, the importance of Mick Collins in the War of Independence, it's intelligence, but it's also, you know, financial uh, ability. Mm. And I mean, he owes a lot of that to his time in, in London. But the kind of people that are in London is really interesting. Sam Maguire is there. Yes. You know, hopefully we'll be talking about Sam Maguire in, in, the, in this city again in a few mm-hmm. weeks. But Corkborn, central to the administration of the London GAA. He actually recruits Collins into the IRB in 1909, which wow. is amazing. Yeah. These two defining names in Irish history. Uh, and this new plaque in London marks the, the location where Collins is sworn into the organisation. It's called Barnsbury Hall in Islington. Sam Maguire swears Collins into the outbound IRB. Okay. And, and, the and that's what the plaque were, is there to show now. And that's okay. what the plaque is there to show. Imagine putting a, like that, a plaque like that would have been unimaginable in London 30, 40 years ago. Mm. But the movement at that time was kind of being revitalised by a, a younger leadership. You know, Some of them joked that the Fenians had become a drinking club of older men. And they were turning it into something new and and, and, and fresh. So this very young Mick Collins is, is sworn into the IRB in 1909 by... By Sam McGuire, just uh, extraordinary. And when they kind of then shed their skin as just a drinking society and they actually start to, to begin drilling and marching and they're thinking about a greater national project, he, he was, of course, there for that too. And and the Volunteer Hall in London is still there to this day. It's amazing. It's a really fancy, bougie restaurant. <laughs> it was, it's at King's Cross. And I went in once when I was in London to have a look at it and it still looks pretty much the same, which is amazing. But it was known as the, the German Gymnasium. Uh, and you know he very quickly makes an impact there in the Volunteers. I mean, Joe Good, who was who was a member of the London Volunteers, I enlisted in the Volunteers at a place called the German Gymnasium near King's Cross sometime in 1914. When I joined, the only person I saw that I knew uh, really well was Michael Collins. He was in the ranks with me the first night I joined up and the following week as section leader. My first impression of Mike, Mike Collins as a man was that he recognised ability in arrival and I had no doubt as to his competence to lead. Obviously, this man, Michael Collins, meant to be in command, which right. is amazing. And this is, you know, 1914. So mm. the creation of this leadership figure, the big fella, if you will, yeah. that's happening, you know, before uh, a shot is ever fired uh, on the yeah, streets of Dublin. Th- that's really striking that if they're talking about him and, and they're kind of projecting him into this kind of larger than life uh, figurehead almost, and, and it's two years before anyone has stormed the GPO. It, it is remarkable. Um, eventually, of course, he does come back to Ireland, but many of the people that he would have known in London and whose circles he would have moved in end up following him home and that kind of Irish community abroad ends up becoming a very influential community here. It's kind of amazing to think about them all coming back in drips and drabs because they hear rumours of kind of what's coming. And, and, and Collins gets back earlier than most of the others. That in itself is quite telling, actually, that there was a kind of ascent in the ranks, you know, that yeah. there were people telling him a little bit more, perhaps, in the rank and file. But a lot of these guys... Liverpool, Salford, Manchester, London, Glasgow, you know, all these traditional centres of Irish migration. Uh, they end up living in the Plunkett family home in Kimmage. And <laughs> what's now Super Value Kimmage, the side, there's a plaque actually on Super Value And they become known as the Kimmage Garrison, which is extraordinary. And I always think about all these Cockney and Mank accents, you know, out there making, yeah. you know, tin pot grenades in, in, in Kimmage preparing for the fight that was to come. There's just great stories about them. Apparently when they were marching into Dublin to fight in the Rising, they stopped the tram and they insisted on paying their fare 
And imagine you were that tram driver and there are yeah. all these, you know, Manx and Cockneys and Irish volunteer uniforms loading onto the tram to go and, to go and fight for, for, for an Irish Republic. And I suppose, um, jumping forward a little bit, the fact that they're, they're putting up a plaque to him now maybe illustrates this, but the city that had shaped him so much then becomes totally obsessed with him. And although he is, he is an Irishman doing things in Ireland, that he's still kind of seen as this celebrity in London circles. That's what's amazing, isn't it? When the treaty debates come about and kind of the winter of 21, Collins is a real celeb. And he's more than a celeb. He's actually a bit of a heartthrob when he goes back to London. <laughs> And he's on the front of all yeah. the newspapers. That's why he gets all the flowers in the grave now. Yeah, and you know the old, you know, the old saying: men want to be him, and, and women wanted to be with him. And that's what happens for for Mick Collins when he goes back in the winter of twenty one. Someone who'd been living in the shadows, he goes to the royal court. He watches a, a production of a Shaw play. Shaw wants to meet him. You know, his portrait is painted by. Uh, Sir John Lavery who talks about him walking into the studio he walked into my studio a tall young Hercules with a pasty <laughs> face sparkling eyes and a fascinating smile and you know, some of the evidence would suggest John Lavery's wife found that smile very fascinating too <laughs> you know Collins was moving around the scene uh, in London and the media was full of him everyone wanted to meet him or at least to see him or shake his hand so it's extraordinary isn't it that the, the yeah. clandestine revolutionary who was you know secretly drilling in the German gymnasium at King's Cross by 1921 was was a household name and, and, a, and a star in the eyes of the British public. What's kind of curious though, and you, you get this from looking at the notes that you sent in before we did this today, uh, that although London speaks really fondly of him, uh, he doesn't speak very fondly of London. And there's this one time where he's particularly cutting about sort of the, the, the fellow on the Clapham omnibus, the man on the street. Yeah, London. yeah. The, the, the plain people of London. Uh, during the, the treaty debates, he says something that presents this picture of a really deeply hostile society, at least at the bottom uh, of the ladder. He says, I know very well that the people of England had very little regard for the people of Ireland and that when you lived amongst them, you had to be defending yourself constantly from insults. Every Irishman who's lived amongst them knows very well that the plain people of England are much more objectionable towards us than the upper classes. Every man who's lived amongst them knows that they're always making jokes about Paddy and the Pig uh, and that sort of thing. Mm. And that's a fascinating thing, isn't it? Very Punch Magazine rendition. Totally, to say that during the treaty debates. But actually... In defence of the people of London, the Irish were able to be themselves, you know, in in pre-revolutionary London. I mean, no one was trying to shut down the GAA, no one was trying to shut down the Gaelic League. And you walk into the Boot, one of the great Irish bars in London, by Euston Station, and there's a picture on the wall of a, a London team that won in All-Ireland. So, yeah. I mean, if you're if you're an Irish person in London in that, those pre-revolutionary years, you know, it seemed that you were able to, to express that right up to the point of, of drilling and training. Yeah. Um, on the whole, then, it, it, you sort of get the impression that it's nearly impossible to tell a full story of Michael Collins without London being a pretty central part in it. And of course, going hand in hand with that was the fact that he was just so young when he was there. Yeah, it's amazing to think Mick dies at 31 years of age, which yeah. is just extraordinary. And he spends nine years of his life in London. So when you think about it, mm. I mean, basically a third of his life is spent living uh, in, in, in the first city of the empire. And Jared Dooley, great historian, writing in that most cork of newspapers last year, The Examiner, <laughs> uh, he wrote something about Collins that I think is really, really important to, to this story. We should always remember. He said he did all this despite being four years younger than the minimum age to be president of Ireland today. Yeah. And amazing. That yeah. age, 35, was the average age of the cabinet of the government at the outbreak of the Civil War. But the outbreak of the Second World War, the average age of the cabinet was almost 48 by 1957, it had risen to 65. You know, what that yeah. tells us 
is that it was a young man's and a young woman's revolution, wasn't it? And isn't it, isn't it fascinating that for Collins, in some ways, it both began in London, where he was sworn into the IRB, and the revolution ended uh, in London, where, yeah. he, where he signed the treaty. Uh, remarkably enough, uh, Donald Fallon is the author of Three Castles Burning, a history of them in 12th Street, Eastern's Book of the Year 2022. You've all been waiting to hear what the follow-up is. Yeah. We had a cover reveal this week, Dolan. Tell us more. Yeah, so we've gone from 12 streets to one road, which is Chesterfield <laughs> Chesterfield Avenue. You can tell the story of Ireland on Chesterfield Avenue in the Phoenix Park. And it's a, an oral history with a family of the Flanagans, the Phoenix Park Lamplighters. They're doing it since the 1890s. Wow. Uh, an amazing tale, an amazing tale. And just a beautiful archive of the Phoenix Park. And I've always been obsessed with, with, with the park, so it's mm. nice to get into that one now. Uh, more of which from Donald Fallon, no doubt, in future Hidden Histories uh, and on. Donald Fallon, as always, thank you for that. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.